Truth Espresso, episode 84. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Well, hey there, friends. This is Daniel Minnick, your host for Truth Espresso. Welcome to this exciting, history-filled episode of Truth Espresso. We are continuing a series asking the question, is Jesus like, insert your favorite superhero here? Well, maybe you'll find that your favorite superhero is not in our list, but I would think you would have some affinity to some of the superheroes that we're covering in this series. So the series that we're doing on Truth Espresso compares Jesus to superheroes. Now, why would we do that? Well, the point of this is to relate to a particular idea about Jesus in truth history and illustrate it with a superhero so that perhaps we can get a little more visual understanding of what this idea was like before we shoot that idea down. So if you haven't listened to episodes in this series, I would highly recommend it to start off with the episode that we did several weeks ago, asking the question, is Jesus like Superman? And we answered that no, because Superman represented someone who was only divine and not human. He was just an alien who looked human. That was the era of docetism. And then next we asked the question, is Jesus like Batman? And although Batman was really cool and exceeded the abilities of the average human being, he was still human and his excessive abilities were by his wealth and his training. There were still human mortal abilities. And so Batman was not like Jesus because Jesus was also divine as well as human. And then next we asked the question, is Jesus like the Ant-Man? And we had to say no, because the Ant-Man represented the idea of modalism or Sabellianism or oneness that God basically put on different masks, the mask of the Father, the mask of the Son, the mask of the Holy Spirit. And so the Ant-Man doesn't represent Jesus just by being one visual manifestation of one person of God. We believe in the Orthodox Christian doctrine of the Trinity here, that there is indeed one God, but that one God consists of three co-equal and co-eternal persons that equally share, not divided up, but they all participate of the whole divine nature of God. And so Jesus is just as divine as the Father. They don't partake of one-third of the divine being, both the Father and the Son, are equally God because they both have the entire being, but they are different whos. They are different persons of the one God. And so that was modalism or the Ant-Man representation. And then the last episode, we asked the question, is Jesus like Thor? 
And the purpose of asking this question is not really to get into the nitty-gritty details of what Thor is like as a superhero, or necessarily that Thor wields a hammer or shoots lightning or, and stuff like that. The question is that Thor is the next highest god in the Norse mythology, and that he's the son of Odin, who is the highest. And this illustrates the idea of Jesus being the son of God, in the sense that he was created. So this idea of Jesus is called Arianism. And we introduced Arius in the last episode along with his opponent Alexander of Alexandria. And the two battled each other for control of the hearts and minds of their other bishops. And then Emperor Constantine, who rose to power, was quite grieved that there was this intense conflict over theology in his empire, and he didn't quite understand it. He wasn't really a Christian theologian. He was still a pagan at the time, but he was tolerant toward Christianity. He wanted to assume it, appropriate it in some sense, without really committing himself to being a follower of Jesus. And so, none of this made sense why they seemed to be arguing over such minutia. It was like asking the question to him, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And so, Constantine wanted this resolved. The two parties would not resolve it. Constantine sent a letter to them, resolve it. They didn't. Constantine sent a second letter to resolve it. They didn't. Eventually, Constantine put together the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Uh, historians recognize that May 20th was the first day at which this council began. And so this is where we're going to begin this episode to trace the history, the battle over the idea that Jesus is like Thor because the Arians believed that Jesus had a beginning. And although they were able to compromise a bit, as we will see, on the minutia of how the Son relates to the Father, Ultimately, they wanted to hold to the idea that the sun had a beginning of existence. And therefore, that is how they believe that Jesus is like Thor, because Jesus had a beginning. Therefore, Jesus is different from the Father in that he's a creature. And although he is a highly exalted creature and very mighty and powerful, in fact, according to Arius, no creature of God could be more powerful than the Son. God could not create something more powerful than how he created the sun, but the sun is still finite, the sun still had a beginning, he's still, in a certain literal sense of the term, the son of God, in that the Father created him at the point in time, and that therefore we are to worship Jesus as divine, but not as divine as the eternal, incomprehensible Father. And so now this episode is going to be even more packed with history than the last episode. And so we begin this episode over the battle of the question, is Jesus like Thor, in particularly the battle over the doctrine of Arianism, with the opening of the Council of Nicaea, May 20th, 325 AD. Now first, 
Let's ask the question, what was the Council of Nicaea not about? Because there's a lot of ideas floating around in the internet, even today, that try to accuse the Ni- Council of Nicaea of all kinds of weird stuff and conspiracies, like it was some smoke-filled room that introduced paganism into an otherwise pure Christian church that defined purity of faith as Jesus not being God and somehow constant introduced paganism and invented the Trinity. Now that, of course, is absurd to anyone who looks at church history because it was just a decade ago before this council that some Christians had been enduring intense persecution for the faith. Uh, Some lost body parts, eyes, limbs, uh, some were killed. And so those who survived the persecutions were called confessors. And so at the Council of Nicaea, as Constantine invited many bishops to this council, Many of them were confessors. Constantine could see that they had lost limbs for the faith, and so he highly respected these bishops for their stand, but of course he wanted unity of faith. And for the idea that Constantine would somehow invent a pagan doctrine, i.e. the Trinity, for those who are against the Trinity and believe that the Trinity is paganism introduced into Christianity at the Council of Nicaea, that's ridiculous because how many of these Christians who lost limb and endured intense pain and persecution by pagans just a decade before and had harsh views about people who had compromised, who had gone along with the pagans at least to avoid persecution, These people had strong opinions about that, and yet we're supposed to believe that the Emperor Constantine introduced the Trinity at this council and the bishops just accepted it. You know, they were duped by paganism. You've got to be kidding me. There is nothing in history that would even begin to bear out this false accusation. Another thing that the Council of Nicaea was not was a time and place to determine the canon of the Bible. I mean, I'm not even going to cite sources. I've only read and seen lots of websites that would talk about the idea that there were about 80 Gospels, whatnot, or they claimed that the Gnostic Gospels were actually widely accepted in the Church, but somehow through the Council of Nicaea and Constantine's influence and through sleight of hand and some good goofy tricks. We ended up with only the four Gospels as a result out of the entirety of the list of Gospels, and somehow we got our canon out of that, and we should have had other Gospel accounts in our canon as allegedly the pure Christians before this took, and somehow the pure Christians were the Gnostic Christians. History, of course, doesn't bear that out, as we can read. The early church writers, uh, most of them wrote against a Gnostic by the name of Marcion. You can read Irenaeus's work against heresies where he wrote thoroughly, mostly against Gnosticism. Um, Gnosticism was not accepted in the early church, and therefore they did not accept or they did not quote from the Gnostic Gospels in their writings. And so if you search the writings before Nicaea, you're not going to see Christians quoting authoritatively from any of the Gnostic Gospels. They argued against them. And if you believe that the truth is otherwise, you have to believe in weird conspiracy theories 
reason you're no better than those who believe in a flat earth and you have to believe that Constantine burned a lot of history and therefore your argument is an argument from silence. And so Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code, notwithstanding and not being correct, the Council of Nicaea had absolutely nothing to do with the issue of the canon of scripture. So what was the Council of Nicaea about? Well, if you listen to the last episode, you see that it was about primarily Arianism. It was about the relationship of the Son and the Father. It was who is the Son of God? Is he a creature or is he eternal with the Father? Is he of a different substance, i.e. a creature like Thor? Or is he of the same substance as the Father and therefore properly almighty God with the Father. That was the primary issue of concern because Constantine wanted Alexander and Arius to be able to somehow, some way, settle their dispute so he can be at peace and have a united empire. Now, two more things that the Council of Nicaea was about, but in a very minor sense. They also talked about the day to celebrate Easter. This is the Quartadeciman controversy. Basically, people in the West wanted to celebrate resurrection of Christ on a different day than churches in the East regarded celebrating the resurrection of Christ. And although the council declared something, it wasn't really binding because the Eastern churches still celebrate Easter differently from Western churches and so on. There was no legal requirement that anyone celebrate Easter at all or celebrate on a particular day. Constantine just wanted people to resolve their differences. And so this one came up a little bit. And another thing that came up was the schism of the Meletians. Now, Meletius of Lycopolis was an originator of this particular schism, and it was similar to the Donatist schism that actually was going on when Constantine was rising to power. I did not mention that in the last episode, but suffice to say that several schisms in including the Miletians, were those who wanted harsh penalties or wanted it to be a lot harder than others did for those who had compromised the faith during persecution to be admitted back into full communion with the church. And so these people that had compromised on the faith rather than faced persecution were called the lapsi. That's a Latin term. Those who had lapsed from the faith. And so the Milesians wanted a harsher punishment rather than just simply let's forgive and let live and let these people who compromise just come back into the church as long as they basically verbally renounce the fact that they had compromised. Now think about how you might be if you had endured intense psychological and physical pain from persecution. You endured for the faith and other people you saw just whimper out and wimp out and compromise and then now you're you're supposed to let them come back and be just like you and you lost one of your eyes or you lost a limb and or you can't even walk anymore for the rest of your life and yet someone who compromised comes back into the church and we're to treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ and just get along you know you're going to have some kind of negative feelings toward them like you didn't 
just go through all that to be treated equally with those who compromise, so it's understandable that some people wanted some harsh penalties or wanted basically a lot of discipleship for those who had lapsed to come back in. We really wanted to see some intense repentance. And so that was another issue that was dealt with at the Council of Nicaea, the schism of the Miletians, and most of the church wanted to be more forgiving toward the lapsed, but there were schisms, the Donatists, also the Novationists, and here the Miletians, who were harsher toward the lapsy. So now let's get into the issue of the Council of Nicaea, the primary issue, that of Arianism. And now Arius, as he went into the council, as he had preached before and in his songs and writings, his poems, he taught what can be summed up in the term heterousios. Now this term relates to how he saw the son relate to the father. So heterousios means of a different substance. And so he believed that the son was of a different substance from the father, i.e. the son was created. And this different substance was a created substance that was inferior to the father. So Jesus was kind of like the archangel, the archangel of archangels, what have you, the highest possible mightiest creature that God could have created who had a beginning before the rest of the creation. And we should recognize how incredibly awesome he is, but as awesome as a creature can get. And so Arius held to heterousios. And Alexander, who opposed him, and his deacon, someone whom he was mentoring in the faith, and his companion at the Council of Nicaea was named Athanasius, and those two together also argued at the Council of Nicaea, and those who agreed with them held to what is called homoousios, or the same substance. So they believed that father and son had that same substance, so they were both persons of the one true God. Now, they didn't believe that the Father and the Son each held a half or a third of the being of God, if you throw in the Holy Spirit there. They believed that whatever the Father was, the Son was also that. He didn't cut off from the Father and become a different being. He was of the same exact being as the Father. And if you remember, Arius kind of went, that's Sibelianism, that's modalism, that's like the (laughs) Ant-Man. And so that was Arius' accusation of homoousios. But Alexander and Athanasius contended they were not in any way supporting modalism because they believed that there was a distinction in person between the Father and the Son, but they shared the same being. And now Constantine opened the first session of the Council of Nicaea on May 20th, A.D. 325, and he mentioned that the location and weather at Nicaea was especially ideal as that it could accommodate bishops from both ends of the empire. The east and the west could get there without too much uh, travel headache, and as he made his opening remarks, he hoped for consent census that this council would resolve the issue and have a united empire. And so, as he had promised, Arius could make his case at the council, and Arius made several arguments such that God the Father is sovereign above all and is incomprehensible. So, he was praising the Almighty God the Father. 
And then he also argued that the sun was created before all ages. So this sounds really orthodox. He said the sun existed from all a- before all ages. But he also said that God the Father was not always a father because God the Father did not become a father until God the Father created a son, and then then God could properly be called a father, because now you had what could be called a son. And so, he argued a position, a relationship between the father and the son, as heterousios. And now, there's an interesting story that happens. Have you ever heard of Santa Claus? <laughs> well, as the story goes, and I'm sure there's some embellishment here, Santa Claus was at the Council of Nicaea. Now, I don't mean um, the guy in the red suit who rides around in a sleigh pulled by reindeer and goes in chimneys to deliver presents. But Santa Claus originally comes from Nicholas, Bishop of Myra. Now, if you've ever heard of Santa Claus referred to as Saint Nicholas, this is the guy in history who actually existed in which the Santa Claus legend was based on and St. Nicholas of Myra was likely present at the Council of Nicaea, according to uh, this particular story. Now, we don't know for certain if this actually happened, but Nicholas, as he was hearing Arius present some arguments early on in the Council of Nicaea, he got so upset over Arius's blasphemy against the sun that he walked up to Arius and struck him. He smacked him across the face. And then, of course, Constantine, being the diplomat he was, but still upset that someone would disrupt a council, had St. Nicholas arrested and thrown in the dungeon there. And the bishops were aghast that a bishop would deface a bishop. And so they had stripped him of his bishop robe. And, you know, there's also some embellishments about St. Nicholas uh, performing miracles later on in his life. And so, yeah, there's the uh, reverence for different saints in history uh, can cause embellishments. So the purpose of this episode is not to deal with those, but just to present the story that perhaps you didn't know that the one whom we get the idea of Santa Claus was actually at the Council of Nicaea, and there's the story goes that Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, uh, opposed Arius and stood up for the deity of Jesus Christ. And so, if you had problems with Santa Claus, at least according to this history, you could have a little bit of respect for the original Santa Claus. Now, Eusebius of Caesarea, so a bishop of Caesarea named Eusebius, not to be confused with Eusebius of Nicomedia, but Eusebius of Caesarea was an historian who he wanted to side with the orthodox position. He was not really in favor of Arianism, but he still had his qualms with the term homoousios. I think he he also feared the accusation of Sabellianism or Mo. And so he tried to propose a term that he was more comfortable with, and he proposed homoousios, which means 
similar substance. So he wanted to believe that the Son was eternal with the Father, but he didn't want to be a modalist, so he proposed homoousios, and he proposed it kind of as a compromise position between heterousios and homoousios. And Arius actually decided that he could agree to that term, of course, as long as he could still preach his doctrine that the Son is a creature. Well, why not believe that the Father somehow, in some mysterious way, was able to create the Son from his own substance, as long as he could hold to the idea that there was a time when the Son, as the Son, did not exist? But the Orthodox party at the Council of Nicaea rejected that term. They vehemently rejected it, and because they accused it of still allowing for Arianism, which they could not allow. And they believed that the term homoousios still functionally denied that the Son is coessential and coeternal with the Father. And they considered this critical. So much of the time spent at the Council of Nicaea was actually arguing over the term homoousios. Now, homoousios, homoousios, same substance, similar substance, what's the difference between those two terms? If we spell them out, the only difference between those two long Greek terms is one letter, the Greek letter iota, or what we would see as the letter I. Now, if you've ever heard the phrase, there is not one iota's difference between whatever, Now you know where that came from. It came from the Council of Nicaea and the argument between homoousios and homoousios. And so on that, I would like to be Paul Harvey to say, now you know the rest of the story. Now, Eusebius of Caesarea, as I mentioned, he wanted to agree with the Orthodox, but he had problems with homoousios. At the Council of Nicaea, he initially objected to the wording of the creed as it was written. He did reluctantly sign it because he believed the intentions was to promote the truth. But later, as he studied the language of the creed and as he understood the intention of the word and what theologians agreed it would not mean, he later wrote his consent to the wording of the creed. And so Eusebius of Caesarea ultimately was fully in favor of the orthodox position of the relationship between the Son and the Father as homoousios. And I'll provide a link to Eusebius's writing there about this in the show notes. And now let's talk a little bit about Athanasius. In fact, let's talk a lot about Athanasius. Athanasius was a deacon under Alexander, and I didn't mention him in the last episode, but Athanasius will basically take the mantle from Alexander and become a fierce defender of the Nicene faith. So, Athanasius was a deacon under Alexander, and he ultimately became a bishop of Alexandria in 328, which was three years after the Council of Nicaea, which was in 325. I hope mentioning 325 enough for the Council of Nicaea will help you remember that date, because the date 325 for the Council of Nicaea is important for Christians to recognize from church history. 
Athanasius was the most prolific and dedicated defender of the Nicene faith during the time after the Council of Nicaea, which we could call the Arian Resurgence, which we'll go into details in just a bit. So, how is Athanasius described by his uh, critics? He was shorter and stalkier than the average man, but Athanasius was a firebrand. He was a fierce debater. Now, as a boy, Alexander, Bishop Alexander, noticed him acting as a bishop and baptizing his peers by the seashore. And so Alexander told Athanasius that these baptisms that he was doing were technically valid because at the time there was this idea that if if you baptize someone using the correct formula, then that was a valid baptism. But Alexander advised Athanasius that he should stop doing these because now the baptized boys would need discipleship. Alexander took young Athanasius under his wing and trained him further in theology to become a bishop because Athanasius proved that he was definitely worthy and eager to defend the faith and practice as a bishop. So, as an archdeacon of Alexandria, Athanasius was indeed at the Council of Nicaea with his bishop and mentor, Alexander. And apparently, Athanasius also did participate in arguments at the council, although Athanasius would not have a vote because I believe only the bishops could vote at the council. But, as is commonly told, at some point in the council, an Arian heckler shouted something to the effect, Athanasius, you will never win. Don't you see that now the whole world is against you? And Athanasius boldly replied, Is the world against Athanasius? So be it. Then Athanasius will be against the world. In fact, these words would pretty accurately describe Athanasius' life after Nicaea. The term Athanasius contramundum would become a popular description of Athanasius for most of his life. So what does that mean? It means Athanasius against the world. And a lot of his critics, when they would mention Athanasius, they would say Athanasius contramundum. Now, let's see. So, what happened at the end of Nicaea in 325 in August? Out of 318 bishops that historians agree, for the most part, were at the council, only Arius and two of his companions couldn't sign the creed that had homoousios to describe the relationship of the son to the father. And so, Constantine had Arius and his few companions exiled. So, the Nicene faith was the official decree of the empire for the time being. Now, Alexander, on his deathbed, in 326, just a few months after Nicaea, declared that Athanasius could be his successor, and many people in Alexandria really liked that idea because they had high regards for Athanasius. But Athanasius did not feel worthy to be bishop, to be patriarch of Alexandria, and so he ran away. (laughs) He tried to run away, fearing the worst that the people would appoint him, and his fears became true. His worst fears came true because the bishop shouted, Give us Athanasius! 
and they chased after him and forced him (laughs) to become patriarch of Alexandria. And so Athanasius had to recognize that maybe it was God's will for him to do this, even though he really didn't want to do it. And now, let's get into the Arian resurgence. Now, I mentioned Eusebius of Caesarea, who really, although he compromised early on in the council, he came to appreciate the orthodox position of homoousios, that the son was of the same substance as the father. There was another Eusebius, I mentioned Eusebius of Nicomedia, who on the last episode, I also mentioned that he was a friend of Arius. So Eusebius of Nicomedia was an Arian sympathizer. Now, both Eusebii, <laughs> Eusebius's, uh, reluctantly signed the creed for different reasons. Now, Eusebius of Nicomedia, being a friend of Arius, reluctantly signed the creed, but he objected to the punishment of exile on Arius. After Nicaea, Eusebius of Nicomedia led a group of like-minded Arians to advance Arianism and to convince Emperor Constantine that Arius had actually repented of any nuances his faith had with the language of the creed, and so he wanted Arius and his uh, banished companions to be reinstated as bishops to promote Arianism under the guise that it really wasn't a problem. It really didn't conflict with the wording of the creed. Of course, you know, obviously they argued against that language intently during the council, but nevertheless, that was their intention. Now, Constantine wrote a letter to Arius in 327, You know, this is two years after the Council of Nicaea in 325. So Constantine wrote a letter to Arius in 327, allowing him to travel back to see him and to make his case that he was not indeed a heretic. Because around the same time, Constantine received a letter from Arius at the end of 327, declaring that his faith was really orthodox. And Arius in the letter tried to make it appear as if he had no issues with Nicaea. Now, I'll provide a link to each of those letters in the show notes along with some other letters. They come from 4thCentury.com. Now, Eusebius of Nicomedia and other bishops in the Arian camp who were declared heretics also wrote a letter to Constantine at the end of 327 asking to be allowed back as bishops. Now, they claimed that they reconsidered the term homoousios and agreed with the council. They claimed that their issue with the punishment was not with the exile per se, but with the stigma of being declared heretics. They wanted to resolve that term against themselves. And I'll provide a link to that letter in the show notes. Now, Constantine, ever the diplomat and always wanting unity, softened his punishment and wrote a letter to the patriarch elder Alexander and told him that he was going to let Arius and his banished companions come back and be reinstated because they declared that they had repented of their error and that they agreed with Nicaea. And he asked Alexander to forgive them as they arrived for the sake of unity. I'll provide a link to that letter in the show notes. 
Yet Alexander did not want to fall for the Arian ploy. He was not in good health himself, but he grieved at Emperor Constantine's mandate to let Arius and his companions back into Alexandria, back into the empire. And he pleaded with the emperor not to let Arius be reinstated. Now, this didn't really rub Constantine the right way because he's thinking, come on, don't Christians forgive people? Come on, just forgive. What's your problem? Constantine refused this plea and told Alexander when Arius was going to arrive and wished that he would forgive him. So obviously the emperor was tired of this fierce conflict continuing on because they had a council that determined this and if the heretics were going to repent and agree, why not let them? He wanted peace and unity. And now the story goes that Alexander spoke passionately to his fellow bishops and prayed with them for the eight days that they had left before Arius would return. Alexander prayed earnestly that Jesus would either take away his life so that he wouldn't see Arius promote heresy there again in front of him, or that Jesus would get rid of Arius himself to protect the church from heresy heresy. Now, that Saturday evening, the night Arius was scheduled to arrive, Arius proudly marched through the street to the cheers of his sympathizers. In Constantine Square downtown, Arius began to speak to an excited crowd. And according to the story, as he was speaking, he began to feel a pain in his abdomen, and he excused himself for a quick bathroom break. Now, Arius ran near a column and asked someone if there was a commode nearby, and he was told that there was one near the Forum of Constantine, which was a stone engraving of Constantine's head. Now, after being gone for a while, some people from the party who were there to hear Arius speak started to worry and look for Arius. And as they searched, they found him dead, still sitting on top of the commode. Arius had an intensely bloody stool that killed him. <laughs> now, let's continue on with the story, um, especially of Athanasius. In 337, Constantine, Emperor Constantine, realized that he was ill and near death. He started to take Christianity seriously, and as a personal faith at his time, he wanted to be purified of his sins. So on his deathbed, he chose the Arian Eusebius of Nicomedia to baptize him. Now, at this time, there was the common belief that baptism would wash away all sins up to the point of baptism, and that therefore, for the most ideal situation of cleansing sins, one should postpone baptism until as close to death as possible to avoid post-baptismal sins, and so that's what Constantine did. Now, unfortunately, as I mentioned, the Council of Nicaea in 325 said that the son was homoousios with the father. That was the official decree uh, from the creed, but the Arians were not going to let that go. Although they claimed to agree with the wording, they really wanted to teach their own ideas, and the council did not seem to have the teeth for its own defense. The Arians actually gained favor in the empire. 
Constantine, as he was dying, tried to pass control of the empire to his sons Constantius II, Constans, and Constantine II, as well as his nephew Dalmatius, as co-emperors of the empire. Each would get a fourth portion of the empire. So obviously, Constantine liked to name his sons or appropriate them with names that kind of resembled his own or at least the title given to him as Constantine. Constantine's son, Constantius II, was a semi-Aryan who held to homoousios, and he allowed the once-exiled Aryan bishops to influence the empire. He held several councils to refine the Nicene Doctrine to a more semi-Aryan doctrine. Now, of course, if Arius and his companions had repented and agreed to the term homoousios in the Nicene Creed, why the need for further counsels on this? But, you know, those questions would have to be answered by the Arians. So, Constantine Constantius II held several councils to refine the Nicene Doctrine to a more semi-Aryan doctrine. He held one in the west at Arminium in 359 and one in the east at Seleucia in 360. He also issued edicts that were harsh on Judaism. So the council at Ariminum in 359 had more bishops than Nicaea. So if you think that the number of bishops determines official doctrine, well, if you're not Arian, you'd have to realize that's not a valid criteria. There were Nicene bishops at the council who opposed the semi-Arian doctrine. They appealed to Constantius to hold to the Nicene Creed, but eventually left the council when their position wasn't being accepted. And there were also advocates of the Homoian position. Now, I didn't mention the Homoian position, but there were Homoians at the Council of Nicaea too, as a fringe minority who basically argued that no form of the term usia, homoousia, homoousia, heterousia, should even be considered as part of a creed because they believed that the term usia, or substance, was not valid to refer to God and that it was not a scriptural term. They figured that the term was overreaching and they believed that we maybe there is no precise term, but we let mystery be mystery, we let scripture be scripture. Now, the remaining semi-Aryan bishops issued the official semi-Aryan creed and dispersed it throughout Italy. And the Council of Seleucia in 360 in the east was similar to that of Arminium. Constantius originally planned to host it in Nicomedia, but because of an earthquake there, he moved it to Seleucia. The council at Seleucia proposed a semi-Aryan creed, of course, that promoted homoousios and condemned heterousios. So, these were the semi-Aryans condemning the full-on Aryans and condemning homoousios. So, like at Ariminum, the bishops who favored the Nicene Creed tried to make their case but then had to leave, and then the remaining semi-Aryan bishops published their creed. So, like his father before him, Constantius II postponed baptism until near his death in 361, and also like his father, he was baptized by a semi-Aryan bishop. This one was Euzoius of Antioch. But now, we look to another emperor, 
uh, one of Constantine's other sons, Constans. Now, unlike Constantius, Constans favored the Nicene position, and he wasn't hostile to the Jews. Yet, Constans struggled with practicing some licentious vices, at least according to some historians, and I'm not going to explain or elaborate these. And we have no record of Constance being baptized near his death by an Arian or otherwise, like Constantine and Constantius. And now, we're going to get into Athanasius's life briefly as we talk about his five exiles. So, as I mentioned, Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius Against the World, that pretty much described Athanasius's life after the Council of Nicaea, because the Arians seemed to have the upper hand in most things during decades after Nicaea. So, Athanasius faced five exiles. Here's the first one. The Arians accused Athanasius of persecuting Arians and Miletians. Remember, those who were strong against the lapsed. Now, Emperor Constantine wanted unity and peace, not persecution. And so, if there's an accusation that someone was persecuting someone and causing disunity, that would interest Constantine. He'd want to get that resolved. So, there was a so-called synod in 335 in the city of Tyre. Now, Athanasius argued against all the charges brought against him. Now, what were some of those charges? Well, first, the Arians had hired a prostitute to accuse Athanasius of wrong behavior with her. A bishop named Timothy saw what was going on behind the scenes, and the Arians were trying to make this accusation before Athanasius entered the room. But as Bishop Timothy saw what was going on, he pretended to be Athanasius, and he walked walked up to this uh, woman and he asked, am I the one you're accusing of sinning? And she, who had obviously never seen Athanasius before, uh, started to cry and complain to the bishops present about how horrible the man Athanasius was. So now the Arians, realizing that their trick was being exposed, the Arians escorted this woman out and they went to the next accusation. The next accusation was that Athanasius had murdered a bishop named Arsenius and cut off his right hand and used it for sorcery. The Arians held up a severed hand of a dead man and asked bishops if they had known Arsenius, uh, to which many affirmed. And it seemed like a closed and shut case against Athanasius there. Now, Athanasius had already had wind of this argument, and he had prepared for this. He brought in the exhibit of the corpse of Arsenius wrapped in a cloak. But then, the one whom everyone believed was murdered suddenly came to life and yanked off that cloak. (laughs) So, with the gasps in the room, seeing Arsenius not murdered and alive, the bishops recognized that the one whom the Arians claimed that Athanasius murdered was not murdered. He was clearly alive. And Athanasius asked Arsenius now to raise his right hand to prove that it was still attached. Next, he had him show his left hand. And then Athanasius turned to the Arian accusers and asked them to explain where on Arsenius's living body Athanasius allegedly managed to cut off his quote-unquote third hand. (laughs) It's like, I wish I were a fly in the wall to see that happen. 
The Arians were quite upset and resorted to the next accusation. They then claimed that Athanasius conspired to restrict Egyptian grain from getting into Constantinople. Although Athanasius denied this, the false accusers, Constantine exiled him to Gaul. Now, later, Constantine's son, Constantine II, wrote a letter to Athanasius trying to assure him that this exile that happened was really to protect him from the scheming Arians. But, you know, who knows? (laughs) Now, the second exile... After Constantine died in 337, Athanasius was allowed to return to Alexandria, but he was returning to renewed Arian territory. The semi-Arian emperor Constantius II was ruler of this region, and Constantius then decided to renew the banishment decree and exiled Athanasius the second time. Now, Athanasius in exile sent his Easter letters or his festal letters each year during this time to his remote city of Alexandria. Now, Julius I, who was Bishop of Rome, tried to help Athanasius by convincing the region of his innocence. He had a gathering of a hundred bishops to meet in Alexandria in 339 or 340 to find Athanasius innocent and to oppose the conspiracy of the synod at Tyre, but this gathering didn't work. But then in 340 later, Bishop Julius called a synod in Rome to declare Athanasius as the true patriarch of Alexandria. In 343, as uh, Bishop Julius and Bishop Hosius went to Serdica to try to get Athanasius declared innocent, the council there had a majority of bishops who were Nicene supporters. They did succeed with this, but the semi-Arian emperor Constantius threatened to kill Athanasius if he ever returned to Alexandria. Now, the Nicene emperor Constance died in 350, and the semi-Arian emperor Constantius then gained more power in the empire. And Julius, bishop of Rome, died in 352, and Liberius replaced him. Now, Liberius also favored the Nicene faith, but he himself was also exiled. And now we get to the third exile of uh, Athanasius. In 357, Liberius, perhaps out of fear, signed a semi-Arian creed at Sirmium that purposefully removed homoousios from the language. And he agreed with the emperor to allow Athanasius to be exiled. He submitted to the emperor and was returned to his position at Rome in 358. Now, why is this significant? Well, You had the Bishop of Rome. Remember, who do Roman Catholics consider the Bishop of Rome to be? The Pope. And yet this Pope, Liberius, signed a semi-Arian creed and that resulted in Athanasius being exiled. So, wouldn't the signature of a Pope on an official creed of the Church be recognized as in some way speaking ex cathedra. And this would mean that the bishop, regardless of what his intentions were, if he buckled under pressure or whatever, he basically wrote ex cathedra and promoted a heresy. <laughs> now, th- this is something that will come up when you have Protestants and Catholics arguing from history over the doctrine of papal infallibility. 
So now, continuing the third exile, Constantius died in 362, and Julian took his place. Now, if you've heard of Julian the Apostate, this is this guy. The religious situation of the empire was now going from the frying pan into the fire, because Julian was not only unorthodox, but he also then favored the return of pagan practices. Julian is known as Julian the Apostate. And as, but, interestingly, as if to spite the pious semi-Aryan dominance that opposed Julius, Julian's paganism, Julian allowed the exiled bishops to return to their posts. He figured he might be able to discredit his religious semi-Aryan opposers by allowing their enemies to come back. You know, the idea that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But in early 362, Athanasius returned to Alexandria. But this would soon be short-lived, resulting in Athanasius's fourth exile. Athanasius quickly received favor in his hometown as he campaigned for unity around the Nicene faith, and Emperor Julian felt threatened by Athanasius's increasing influence and ordered him to be exiled again. Exile number four. Athanasius, as the story, popular story goes, during his exile, he was headed down the Nile River toward the desert, and Julian probably, you know, wanted to exile him, but then secretly send some soldiers over to get rid of him. Now, when Athanasius perceived that Julian's soldiers were following him down the Nile, he directed the captain of the ship to turn around and head back toward them. Now, the captain was flabbergasted that Athanasius would suggest it, but he went along with it. Now, as the boats were crossing paths, the soldiers shouted across, "'Have you seen Athanasius?' Athanasius, uh, cloaking his visage, shouted back, He is not far. <laughs> so Athanasius's faith still continued there. Athanasius, as he finished sailing, then hung out with the monastic desert fathers until the next year. Now, Julian the Apostate died in 363, and the friendlier emperor Jovian took his place. Jovian wrote to Athanasius, inviting him back to Alexandria. Once Athanasius returned to Alexandria, he continued his campaign to restore the Nicene faith, as he was always wont to do. He then met with Emperor Jovian, who allowed him to start spreading his campaign in the empire. But, unfortunately, Jovian died early the next year in 364, and was replaced by Emperor Valens, who was an Aryan sympathizer. Here we go again. Emperor Valens made haste to exile Athanasius again. Exile number five. At first, Athanasius remained near the suburbs of the city of Alexandria. He spent several months hiding near his family graves. Now, Emperor Valens re-exiled the bishops that Jovian brought back. Valens, under pressure from the people of Alexandria, allowed Athanasius to return in 366, and thus ended Athanasius's final exile, his return to Alexandria, in 366, where once Athanasius made haste back in Alexandria to continue his campaign to restore the Nicene faith before he died in 373. 
Now, the Council of Constantinople in 381, after Athanasius's death eight years afterwards, officially reaffirmed the Nicene Creed. And later we have what is called the Athanasian Creed that celebrated the orthodoxy that Athanasius fought his whole life to defend. So indeed, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world, it really was that way. Even the Bishop of Rome allowed for his exile one time, and Athanasius, if it weren't for his continual struggle for the truth of the faith, who knows, we might not have many Trinitarians, theologically speaking, today. We all owe a lot of our faith, the deity of Jesus Christ, with the Father. The idea of the Trinity is one God, three persons— to Athanasius's unrelenting battle against Arianism. And so, I would hope that we could say, along with Athanasius, to answer the question, is Jesus like Thor? Is Jesus a created son of the Father? Or is Jesus as the Son? Is the Son coessential and coeternal with the Father? Is he homoousios with the Father? Is he of the same substance of the Father and therefore truly God and to be worshipped with the Father as the one God Almighty? I hope we can all say together, yes, Jesus is not like Thor. He's not a creature, but he is indeed God Almighty with the Father. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 